Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 21. And again, if you have your scriptures with you, I invite you to follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Over the past year, we have made mention on more than one occasion, that the church in Rome was not founded by Paul because he clearly indicates in his correspondence that he has long desired to come to them, to help build them up, to establish them, something that he would never do based upon what he says at the end of his letter. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But we also noted that same statement tells us that none of the other apostles were responsible 
for introducing the gospel to the city of Caesar either. And the conjecture has been that the gospel made its way to Rome because of what we have just read. God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon the small contingent of disciples who were praying together in an upper room out of obedience to the risen Christ and in anticipation of his promise to send the Spirit to them. And then when 3,000 souls responded to the preaching of Peter that day, and they themselves were filled with the Holy Spirit, those who were from Rome began that return trip, traveling together perhaps, certainly meeting one another along the way, beaming now with a newfound faith, clustering together in the evening perhaps, talking about what had occurred. And by the time they reached the imperial city, the church there had been born. Now, had their experience of Pentecost been purely emotional, had it been that they were simply caught up in a moment of euphoria, I contend that by the time they would have reached Rome, that emotional high would have surely passed. Anyone who has ever attended a big-name musical event or a, a, some kind of a Super Bowl or big athletic event where the, where the performing artist or the team has, has entertained thousands, you know the feelings associated with that event do eventually wane. You may still own the t-shirt from the concert or from the game, but when you put it on now, all you can really tell someone is that you were there that night and it was fantastic, but it was simply a moment in time that long passed away. But the new believers who left Jerusalem were now changed individuals. They were new creations. The old had passed, the new had come. Did they feel different? Undoubtedly, they did, but not purely at the emotional level. Their new sensations, their new feelings sprang from their soul, like a spring of living water that would constantly refresh a person, as Jesus told the woman at the well. It wasn't happiness as much as it was a spiritual joy that stemmed from the truths that they heard that day. Now, first of all, I want you to notice what the writer Luke says in the very first verse of this chapter. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, meaning the disciples of Christ who were awaiting the Spirit, they were all together in one place. I have said to you before that Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, the only way that 120 disciples are still hanging out together seven weeks later is because Christ rose from the dead and then spent the next 40 days reappearing to them, allowing them to touch him, eating breakfast with them beside the sea, popping in and out to speak to them and confirm for them that it was truly him in his own resurrected body. And when at the end of those 40 days the disciples witnessed his ascension into the heavens, with the words of the Great Commission heavy on their hearts, and now with a new command to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, they were fully convinced that Jesus would absolutely fulfill his promise 
And so they returned to Jerusalem and began to pray. When the Jews and proselytes from all over the known world were startled over the tornadic arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they raced out of their places of lodging, wondering what had just happened, and they began to hear undereducated Galileans standing in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the mighty works of God in languages that were not their own, but in dialects that were known well by the myriad of nations represented that day, these visitors to Jerusalem certainly began to give ear to what was being said. And of all the things that the disciples were proclaiming, surely the atoning work of Christ, as well as his bodily resurrection after three days, were among those mighty works. The mere existence of these Galileans speaking in tongues unknown to them was evidence to these visitors that something unique and strange was occurring. So strange and so unusual was this that they asked, how is this possible and what does this mean? Now such questions point to hearts that were genuinely perplexed but also genuinely inquisitive. That is, they were at least open to hearing an explanation. doesn't mean that they would all embrace the answer, but it does mean that they were interested enough to listen. But also in that crowd were those who had no interest in hearing. Notice how there are those who immediately attempt to shut down any explanation by making disparaging remarks about the disciples of Christ. They essentially say, don't pay any attention to them. They're all drunk. But think about that for a moment. Have you ever been around a truly intoxicated person? When they speak, do you find yourself having a hard time making sense of whatever it is that they're saying? Not because their speech is so slurred, though there is that, but because their mind is so clouded that it is difficult to follow their train of thought. That's not the case here. These detractors are also hearing the mighty works of God, proclaimed in tongues that they clearly understand, and yet they do not want to hear it. They quickly dismiss it. As miraculous as this sign from heaven is, they mock it. More than that, they attempt to negatively influence those who are genuinely interested in understanding what God is up to here. Now this is significant for the disciples of Christ even today because we also are called to bear witness to Christ. But in doing so, we will find that there are those who are genuinely interested in hearing about the mighty works of God in Christ and there are others who will seek to disparage whatever it is that we have to say or they will seek to disparage us. Now we need to read those signals carefully. That is, where we believe that there is a ready audience, we need to be prepared to make a defense of the hope that is in us, as Peter writes to the saints that are scattered across Asia Minor. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In bearing witness to Christ, we need to know when the signal is green and when it is red. If it's a no-go, then we need to understand that the Holy Spirit has not yet made the soil of that person's heart ready for the seed of the gospel. But if we are encouraged to explain, if we are encouraged to help another person make sense of what is taking place in their life, then we need to be ready to make that defense of the hope that resides within us. On the day of Pentecost, Peter does that masterfully under the influence and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now here is one of the more dramatic personal transformations that we find in the scriptures. I'm sure that most of us, if we were to say, think of someone that did a complete 180, Paul would be the one who comes to mind first of all. But the transformation of Peter is quite dramatic as well. Here was an undereducated fisherman whose brash and undisciplined personality caused him to constantly put his foot in his mouth. He was always among the first to speak, and it was rare that he was on target. When he was the first to answer Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer was, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blessed Peter for that answer, telling him, that God the Father had revealed that truth to Peter. But that one shining moment did not last very long because Jesus then began to tell the disciples that he would be arrested and killed by the authorities. And Peter, probably thinking that he was still in a state of divine inspiration, began to rebuke the one who he had just called the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter was the one who attempted to show that he'd gotten the hang of Jesus' teaching when he asked the question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Oh, the magnanimity of Peter. But Jesus' answer showed that Peter did not yet understand, for he said, not seven times. Try seventy times seven. In other words, there will never come a time when you may take revenge. When Peter wanted to demonstrate how strong his faith was, he asked to come to Jesus who was walking on the water, but it wasn't a second later that he was crying out for help. It was Peter who suggested that they build three booths atop the Mount of Transfiguration and just spend the rest of their days there in that heavenly bliss only to be verbally smacked down by God the Father who said, this is my son, listen to him. It was Peter who declared that even if all the other disciples were to abandon Jesus, that he never would. Just before he withered under the accusations of a little servant girl who claimed that he was a friend of Jesus and he denied knowing the Lord three times. But here we are, seven weeks later, and Peter is standing before all Jerusalem proclaiming that what these residents and visitors are witnessing is another mighty act of God who foretold that this would happen through the prophet Joel. Such a transformation is demonstrative of the Spirit's work. 
Now, before we get to that scriptural application, I want us to take note of the fact that Peter has been emboldened to bear witness not only by the things that he has come to understand through three years of walking with Jesus and then over the next 40 days spent with the risen Christ as well as the last 10 days spent in prayer, but he has been emboldened to bear witness by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness to Christ or evangelism is not a man-made endeavor. Contrary to the thought of some who believe that people can be brought to a point of genuine repentance and conversion through emotional manipulation, we ought never to believe that it is within our power to convince another person of the truth of the gospel. That is always the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the word of Christ proclaimed to pierce the hearts of the unregenerate and convince them of their sin as well as to the righteousness of Christ that they need, as well as to the coming judgment that will fall upon all the world. So going back to what we said a moment ago about being able to read the signals that we receive from others, if the light is green, the Holy Spirit will take our witness to the mighty acts of God in Christ and put them to good use. But if that light is red, you could witness every single day to that person and it will have no impact if the Holy Spirit is not at work. Our task is to bear witness. It is the Holy Spirit's task to make use of that witness in ways that we might never know. But occasionally, sometimes we do. A few weeks ago, someone approached me after worship, wanted me to know that their faith was renewed because of my ministry among you all. And this person said to me, I came back to Christianity because of you. Now, I did not correct that person right then. There were others waiting in line to greet. But I would say to that person today that their return to the things of Christ is because the Holy Spirit has made application of the word of Christ and convicted them to the point of repentance. You and I do not have the power to bring about conversion in anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. What we have the power to do is to faithfully bear witness to Christ, but again, under the power and the influence of the Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see happening here at Pentecost as Peter begins to preach. This is extemporaneous. Peter does not have a manuscript that he's been working on over the last 10 days. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he cites the prophet Joel. Now, Joel was not the only prophet to speak about the Lord pouring out his spirit on his people. In Isaiah 32, the prophet is speaking about a king who will reign in righteousness. And the prophet declares that there will come a moment when the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest and then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, 
quietness and trust forever. In the um, assurance of pardon that we read a moment ago, we read this passage from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. At Pentecost, this moment when God pours out his spirit upon his people occurs. And in a way that was unlike any other moment in the relationship between God and his people, there was a spiritual communion that Jesus described as the triune God taking up residence within believers. In John 14, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This will occur by means of the Holy Spirit, of whom Jesus has just said that the Spirit will dwell with you and will be in you. Now, notice this about the prophecy of Joel and how it is applied by the Holy Spirit here. Luke indicates that the Spirit fell upon all of the believers. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to declare the mighty works of God. There was no distinction. The Spirit fell upon men and women, young and old, slave and free, rich and poor. They had all... uh, They had all once been unregenerate sinners, but then they met Jesus and the Holy Spirit raised them to new life and made them new creatures, new sanctified vessels fit for the presence of the King. I want you to know that there is no sinner so vile and depraved that God's Spirit cannot redeem them. There is no sinner beyond the reach of God's grace that God cannot use for His glory. And there is no redeemed sinner that is exempt from service to God. And this is the picture that we see as this company of 120 disciples pour out of this house under the power and supervision of the Holy Spirit bearing testimony in the streets of Jerusalem to the mighty works of God. While they were once intimidated by the power and authority of the Jewish leaders such that they spent the early days behind locked doors out of fear, they have now been transformed by the indwelling Spirit such that they are boldly telling all who have ears to hear about the redemptive work of God in Christ Jesus. And this is the desire for the spirit of the Spirit for us as well, that we would open our mouths and tell the world about what God has done in Christ. Not to open our mouths and tell others what we have done for Christ. Not to open our mouths and tell others how God will do this for you if you do this for Him but rather to open our mouths and point people to Jesus. If as believers or as the church we open our mouths and we tout the personal benefits of following Jesus Christ, we run the risk of not attracting people to Jesus for Jesus' sake, but rather encouraging them to follow for their sake. The gospel is not come to Jesus and life will be better for you because that's a lie. More than likely, life will not be better for you. It might be incredibly hard for you. Like those whom Paul fondly greets at the end of his Roman letter, you may suffer a great deal because of your faith in Christ and your association with Him. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The gospel is that Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The gospel is all about Jesus. Now you may wonder, then what's the benefit to following Christ? The benefit is Jesus. Paul says to the Corinthians, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is to say that whatever God has promised to humanity from eternity past, before we ever were, all the way into the eternal future, that will be yours if you are in Christ. If you have Christ, you have all there is to have. So how does that happen? The prophet Joel declared, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When Peter finished preaching, we are told that the multitude was cut to the heart, and they asked, Brothers, what shall we do? How is this possible? What does this mean? Now what shall we do? And Peter answered, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, have you humbled yourself? And have you come to Christ? Have you recognized your need for the Savior who washes away sin and makes all things new? I hope that your presence here today speaks of an openness to the Word of God and that you are not tempted to make a mockery of it. The Bible says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But if you have not yet surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I invite you to do so even now as we come together in prayer. Would you pray with me?